In the Gospel of Luke, uh, there is a significant moment in Jesus' life that Luke highlights for us that really becomes a turning point in Luke's Gospel. That is in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And if you just happen to be reading through the Gospel of Luke uh, in your daily devotional sometimes, it's really very easy to miss this moment in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. But as Luke writes his very unique account of Jesus' life, this is an important moment for him. And the rest of Luke's Gospel changes from that point forward. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says this, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Up to this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been going from town to town, mostly in Galilee, proclaiming the kingdom of God through his teachings and through his parables. He's been displaying the kingdom of God through his miracles and healing people of all kinds of diseases and uh, calling this this strange group of people, this very diverse group of people around himself who are called his disciples and the other people who follow him. But here in Luke 9, Jesus' attention becomes focused toward Jerusalem. uh, Luke tells us that Jesus literally sets his face toward Jerusalem. He sets his face toward Jerusalem. And from this point forward, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is moving closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. He's no longer moving kind of somewhat randomly, it would seem, from town to town in the region of Galilee. From Luke 9.51 on until he gets to Jerusalem, Jesus is moving closer and closer to Jerusalem. And we know what that meant for Jesus, right? For Jesus, going to Jerusalem meant that he was going to die. In the coming chapters in Luke, Jesus makes this very clear. It says in Luke chapter 13, Jesus says this about his journey to Jerusalem. He says, I must keep on going today and tomorrow and the next day to Jerusalem, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 18, he says this, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. When Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, he sets his face to die. He is determined at this point on to go to the cross and to accomplish the work of forgiveness and reconciliation through his death. Jesus sets his face to take on the suffering and the sin of the world. Jesus sets his face to accomplish the will of his Father. And throughout the rest of the point, uh, Gospel of Luke, there's another change as well. Because from that time forward in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' life and his message become more and more offensive to people. He begins to experience rejection. People aren't so keen to follow him anymore. And even when he does draw a crowd, he turns to them and says things like this in Luke 14. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Words like this tended to thin the crowds out pretty quickly. 
Jesus' decision to go to Jerusalem and to go there to die begins to create division between those people who are fully committed to him, who saw him as the way and the truth and the life, and separated those people from those who are following along just to see a good show or to get something from Jesus. Those who wanted to follow Jesus were now told that they had to count the cost. And some people, when they heard the cost of what Jesus was asking, they thought it was too costly. And so they left. But there were others. There were others that counted the cost. And they discovered that in Jesus, true joy and true life are found. And so there was no cost that was too great if it meant gaining Jesus. Our God in heaven, as we listen to this word today, God, as we hear your call to discipleship, your call to count the cost, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that you are the greatest treasure. I ask these things in your name. Amen. For the past six months, we've been walking through the history of the Bible, focusing uh, particularly on God's mission his plan and purpose for the world, his plan and purpose for us and all that he has made. And throughout this time, we've summed up God's mission in this way. God's mission is that the whole earth would be filled with his glory. That the whole earth would be filled with his glory. That on every square inch of our world, that the one who created us and who loves us would be given the worship that is due to him. That on every square inch of our world, that human beings would live lives within his good and perfect will, would return thanks to him for his gifts, would worship him with the works that they do with their hands, that we would know him and experience and enjoy his eternal love forever and ever. God's mission is that the whole earth would be filled with his glory, that he would receive the honor and the worship and glory that is due to him. This is God's mission, that the whole earth would be filled with his glory. I want to suggest to you that this is precisely the same thing as the kingdom of God. When the kingdom of God comes in all of its fullness, when Christ returns, the whole earth will be filled with his glory. Now, as we've been looking at the life of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we've seen that Jesus' mission was all about the kingdom of God. In his ministry, he proclaimed the kingdom of God, that it was available to anyone who would repent, who would turn to him, and who would believe. Through his miracles and through his healings and through the community he gathered around him, he displayed what the kingdom of God looked like. The kingdom of God is a place of healing and wholeness and deliverance from those things that oppress us. Wherever Jesus went, the glory of God was present. Jesus called together this kingdom community, and for anyone who would come to him and submit their will and their agendas to him, they would experience forgiveness. And they would learn that through abiding in him, through hearing and obeying his word, that in their own lives, that they would bear good fruit. And in their life, that they would reflect the glory of God wherever they went. And God today continues to call this kingdom community. 
a people who will, in our own lives, together submit to his rule in our life, to his kingdom reign in our lives, so that in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, that our lives will reflect the goodness and the holiness and the glory of God wherever we go. This is the kind of people that we are called to be. And over these last few weeks, we've been talking about some of the different characteristics of people who are this kingdom community. We've seen that they are a people who are healed by Jesus, a people who have oriented their whole lives around Jesus, a people who sit at the feet of Jesus, and a people who hear God's word and who put it into practice. That's what we've uh, been our focus the last few weeks. We're going to be talking in these next few weeks very specifically about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because in order to be a person who is a part of this kingdom community, we need to be trained for it. We need to learn to live under God's rule. It's not something that comes naturally to us in our sinful nature. Instead, it's something that we grow up into more and more as we learn from Jesus how to live our lives. We must become disciples of Jesus or a student of Jesus or an apprentice of Jesus and to learn from him how to live our lives under his rule. Here's the truth. Truly, truly, I say unto you, you will be trained by something. You and your life will be trained by something. There is a battle going on in our world for your mind, for your affections, for your allegiance. And if we do not commit ourselves to following Jesus, to learn from him, to be trained by him about what it means to live a life that is pleasing to God and that brings God glory, then our minds and our hearts and our imaginations and our allegiances will be captured and trained by something else by some other ideology, by some other vision of what it means to live a good life. And so we must commit ourselves to following Jesus, to being his disciples. And in these next few weeks, as we look forward to Easter, we're going to look at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And I want to begin by talking about discipleship by looking at the Sermon on the Mount. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5 through 7. It's Jesus' longest extended teaching about what it means to be his followers. Um, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about all kinds of things. He talks about topics like money. He talks about anxiety and worry. He talks about sex and prayer and worship and family and fasting. He talks about all kinds of things and how we are to live our lives following him. And at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, after giving all of these instructions about what it means to follow him, Jesus tells us that there are two options when it comes to the choice of following him. Two options. We can accept him and commit our whole lives to him, or we can reject him. There is no middle way. And Jesus talks at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us three images. He talks about two roads, he talks about two trees, and he talks about two houses. Two roads, two trees, and two houses. Matthew chapter 17, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. This is the two roads. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. 
But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. There are two roads, a narrow road and a broad road. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, there are two trees. Verse 16, he says, uh, verse 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Two different kinds of trees. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, two different kinds of houses. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who's built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Two roads, two trees, two houses. These are three, uh, three images that describe the different possible ways for us to respond to Jesus and his teaching. There are not three roads and three trees and three houses. There are two roads and two trees and two houses. There is not a middle-sized road with a middle-sized gate. There is no third tree that produces fruit that's just okay. There is not a house that it's built on a foundation that will last for a few years. There are two roads and two trees and two houses because there are only two ways to respond to Jesus' teachings with total commitment or total rejection. There is no middle way. People often follow Jesus as if following him were just one more thing added to their lives to have some kind of well-rounded life. In our lives, we need a good job, we need a good career, we need a nice family, a nice home, a nice car, and we need a good spiritual life. And so I'll receive Jesus as my Savior, and he becomes kind of the icing on the cake to our already okay life. This is not the picture of discipleship that we find in the Scriptures. What we find in the Scriptures and what we read in the Gospels is that following Jesus is not some added extra to our life. Following Jesus requires that all of our lives come under his authority. And following him may require sacrifice and commitment. The old hymn, The Wondrous Cross, written by Charles Wesley, says that the response to Jesus' love and his calling is my soul, my life, my all. The calling of love and grace of Jesus demands our soul and our life and our all. Two roads two trees, two houses. Going back to Luke chapter 9, we find that when Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, it creates a division. There's a division between those who have committed to Jesus and to those who have not. And uh, immediately after Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, 
There's a series of people who come and say, Jesus, I want to follow you too. And each one of them is turned away in one way or another. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. First man comes and says to Jesus, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. To any place that you go, I will go there with you. And Jesus challenges him by saying that on this planet, I have no place to go. I am going to Jerusalem to die. I have no home here. If you are looking for a place, if you are looking for safety and security here, you won't find it by following me. If you're looking for safety and security in this life, you won't find it by following me. The next two people say that they will follow Jesus, but there must be a delay first. I want to put off following you until some certain time. And both of these people use family reasons as an excuse for why they have to wait. And Jesus' response to these people seem harsh. If you want to follow me, you must follow me now. What Jesus saw in these people is that they had not resolutely set their face to follow him. Both of these people had different reasons, good reasons, we would say, for why they couldn't follow Jesus. And while some of them may have seemed like good reason, Jesus says, no, you must follow me now. I have resolutely set my face to die, and if you want to follow me, you must do the same. When we hear Jesus respond this way, it it sounds as if maybe Jesus didn't really want people to follow him. Why would he demand so much? It isn't that Jesus didn't want people to follow him. It's that he wanted them to count the cost. It's very easy when things are going very well in our own lives, going very well in our own church. It's an exciting time to be a part of Broadway Christian, isn't it? It's it's fun to to volunteer and to, to serve and to join with what God is doing here right now. But what about when times get challenging? And Jesus sees in these three men that come to him, he sees in them this desire to follow along with someone who's doing really well, someone who's really popular, and he sees through that, and he demands that they count the cost. To these people, Jesus is saying, listen, there are two roads and two trees and two houses. There is no third way. Following me requires your full commitment And anything less than that is no commitment at all. The first step in discipleship, in committing our lives to Jesus, is counting the cost. There's a great parable in the book of Matthew. It's in Matthew chapter 13. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read this for you. It's the parable of the treasure in a field. 
I'm going to read this parable to you twice, and I just want you to perhaps close your eyes and listen to it and, um, and think about it as I read it to you. Matthew chapter 13, the treasure in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. This is a parable about the attitude and the actions of someone who has committed their whole heart to something, their whole soul, their whole life, their all. When this man comes across this treasure in a field in this parable, the man realizes that he owns nothing more valuable than that treasure. The man looks at that treasure and realizes that everything that he has worked to up to that point in his life is worth giving up in order to gain that treasure. And so Jesus says that he went and he sold all of his possessions. How? Begrudgingly? Sadly? He did it with joy because he knew that there was treasure available to him that was worth far more than anything that he had already. The trade was easy. In order to acquire the treasure, he realized that a trade-off had to happen, but he did it gladly because he realized that treasure was worth far more than anything else that he had. He did it with joy. To look at that treasure hidden in the field and to not give up everything would be foolish because the treasure was more valuable than anything else that he owned. Jesus is more valuable than anything else that we can possess. And when we discover how valuable he is, it will be our joy to follow him with our soul and with our life and with our all. I can't emphasize this with joy part enough because we sometimes have this idea that following Jesus is a, is a bit of a drag. If that's in your mind, if that is what you think, you will never be able to fully follow him. You will always wonder what Jesus is keeping from you. He is keeping nothing good from you, friends. He is keeping nothing good from you. When you discover the good news of Jesus, when you discover that in him you find the acceptance of God, when you discover that in him you find reconciliation and forgiveness, when you discover that life and obedience to him will lead you to your greatest joy, then it will be easy to follow him with your soul and with your life and with your all. The parable of the treasure hidden in the field tells us that the first condition to entering discipleship to Jesus, to entering into the kingdom of God, is that we value Jesus more than anything else. And that being willing to give up everything to follow him is easily worth the cost. Discipleship to Jesus is not something that can ever be done begrudgingly. It is done with joy or it is not done at all. It's done with joy or it's not done at all. Of course, this does not mean that we will not experience suffering in our lives. In fact, if we follow Jesus, we're promised, if we're promised anything, 
were promised suffering. Discipleship to Jesus requires full commitment and sacrifice, and being a disciple of Jesus will lead to suffering because this world is filled with those who are opposed to him and to his way. Those who are Jesus' disciples will face opposition in this world. Discipleship to Jesus may lead to physical suffering. Discipleship to Jesus will require us to reject many of the things that make this life easier or more comfortable. This is true throughout the whole Bible, and especially in the New Testament. Think of the book of Acts and the martyrdom of Stephen and of James. The persecution that took place in the early church. We read about Paul and his travels, how he went through all sorts of suffering for the sake of Christ. One of the strongest themes of the New Testament is the reality of suffering that is caused because we are a follower of Jesus in a world that is filled with evil and is filled with those who are opposed to him. The forces of evil resist those who follow Christ. And being a disciple means being ready, being prepared, perhaps even training ourselves to suffer. And friends, this past week we were reminded, weren't we, that suffering for Jesus in our world is not something that happened a long time ago something that happens right now. 21 of our Egyptian brothers martyred for their faith and their death displayed for the whole world to see. But these were men who were following Jesus and who had their face set toward the cross. In Hebrews 12, it says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who, for what? The joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such suffering from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Was it because he did it, did he do it begrudgingly? He did it with joy. He was obedient to the Father because he knew that what was gained through his suffering was far greater than anything else that could be gained in the world. Our 21 Egyptian brothers in their suffering had a joy that was set before them and they are enjoying it now forever and ever and ever and ever. There are two roads, there are two trees, and there are two houses. Friends, the example of Jesus, the example of these 21 brothers of ours, remind us that the call to the kingdom of God requires our full commitment. Following Jesus is not simply the spiritual icing on the top of a cake of an already good life. The disciple of Jesus knows that there is a treasure that is far more valuable than anything that this world has to offer. And so with joy, they follow him on the road to Jerusalem, on the road to the cross. And in this life, that road is filled with joy and with sorrows and with victory as well as with suffering. As a disciple, we will experience all of these things, but we will do it with our eyes set on the one who went to the cross and suffered with joy 
for us. And he did it because he knew what was gained through his suffering.